Let's rumble. I'm sorry. With podcasting. Let's rumble. Okay, Bob, take it away. Okay. Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water, one podcast. I'm Bob Crossan, Managing Editor of Water and Waste Digest. I'm Lauren Estes, Managing Editor of Water Quality Products. And I'm Lauren Baltus, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. In this episode, we're going to talk about groundwater pumping and how it has impacted stream flows in the U.S., the Cuyahoga River Fire anniversary from 50 years ago, and we also have an interview with Rob Moore, who is the Senior Policy Analyst with the NRDC. Uh, so first up, we have groundwater pumping, um, how it's uh, impacting stream flows in the U.S. So this was a, um, the University of Arizona has a, has a hydrologist who is studying this. Um, her name is Laura Condon, and she's studying the, um, how groundwater pumping has influenced groundwater aquifers mostly. Um, the U.S. Geological Survey calculated that there's been a loss of groundwater over just the 20th century of 800 cubic kilometers or, or uh, 649 million acre feet, which is a crazy amount of water. Um, the statistic that they mention here is that that amount of water could cover the states of Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, and most of California with one foot of water. Like one foot deep. That's a tremendous amount of water. So this is all um, they're saying, um, or not all of it, but groundwater or uh, groundwater pumping is significantly contributing to this. So one of the things with that is specifically agriculture and um, like even flying to ACE, um, you, if you looked out the window from the air, airplane, I don't know mm-hmm. if you did, Lauren, but um, there's you can see the crop, like the actual crop irrigation circles mm-hmm. uh, like um, that are actually called out in this article. Um, so you can see just how many spots there are that groundwater is being pushed up from the, from the ground mm-hmm. and spread out into these irrigation channels. Um, so the concern there, specifically in the Rocky Mountains where they've... Um, where snowmelt is really important to um, the groundwater aquifers, and they already didn't really have very um, very much wa- of a water table there. The, the The article mentions that the depth was six to thirty three feet. Um, that this is even more impactful in areas like that, but it's starting to show in the Midwest because um, there's so much agriculture here, um, and that those areas are becoming more arid, like. Um, where I'm from in Springfield, I know for sure it has become a lot more arid. It's not gotten um, quite as much rain as it used to get. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And I mean, groundwater resources are tremendously important because then, then you also have to think about how does that impact well water as well, you know? This, I think this question and this topic is going to become much, I think it's going to be talked about a more and more mm-hmm. in the coming years as we're seeing um, more droughts occur with climate change Absolutely. and more um, a higher degree of water scarcity. Um, I think that people are going to pay a lot more attention to this. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I personally don't know how closely ground, what, 
how many regulations there are for groundwater pumping. I don't know any mm-hmm. kind I'm of I'm not sure either. I've never researched that. that before. So I've never researched that, but I'd imagine that that those regulations will grow or compliance mm-hmm. will become a little bit more stricter. I know it's a big I know it's a big deal, especially in Arizona. Um, yes. there have been several major news outlets outlets that have reported on how groundwater pumping is yeah. negatively impacting communities down there, how this industrial mm-hmm. farming complex is causing issues. Well, even on a small scale, I remember when um, interviewing folks in Cape Town when mm-hmm. they were approaching day zero, there were a lot of residences who would dig their own wells mm-hmm. and boreholes and pump their own water. And even even a small scale like that is very impactful when there's a drought. Mm-hmm. Um, so you brought up earlier, Bob, uh, the impact on well pumping. And I, from the WQPN, I talk to a lot of different dealers. You know, I talk to dealers every month for our monthly column. And I've talked to a lot of people who say their business was founded on well drilling, Mm -hmm. but then transitioned more into the water filtration, water treatment side because either A, well drilling is just not used in their community as much anymore Mm -hmm. and people are switching to surface water, or B, it's just not an option. So Mm -hmm. the needle's definitely shifting on that. And then to piggyback off of that, um, in Arizona and some of the western states, they did recently sign the Colorado River Drought Contingency Plan. So we'll definitely be seeing some changes in regulations happening mm-hmm. there and how people relate to their water usage. And I have an interview coming up with um, uh, Arizona Water Utility um, mm-hmm. out there. So I'm really interested to hear more from them about some of their public outreach efforts and how they seek to raise awareness in the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this I think this groundwater pumping thing, this is this is something that we should consider for any future Day Zero content as well. I don't think that's on our like docket really mm. this year for Day Zero, but it's maybe something we should like really that's look into point. for twenty twenty. Yeah, we'll be yeah. doing a special um supplement, digital supplement this year, um, covering water scarcity across the US with some special case studies and columns and things like that. So keep an mm-hmm. eye out for that later, um, closer to WebTech. Yep. We're looking to have it ready for you guys at WebTech. So, so um, the next news item we wanted to talk about was the 50-year anniversary of the um, Cuyahoga River fire. Um, there, It's not the only fire. <laughs> there were, <laughs> I think, if I'm correct, there were many fires, maybe 13. Yeah, there were 13 fires on the Cuyahoga River. It wasn't just one. <laughs> wow. Um, but, so, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. But the 13th one was the one that triggered the change. I believe so. So this, I'm, um, this news item, um, this reporting is from WBR, which is an NPR member station. And we also have some reporting on our website, um, eStormwater.com and www.dmag.com. The combination of all these fires on the Cuyahoga River (laughs) is what spurred, thank you, Bob, this um, environmental movement that started rolling across the U.S. um, and was even, um, as WBER says, a catalyst in the creation of the Clean Water Act and the EPA. So that's pretty huge and makes sense why um, the Cuyahoga River is so famous. And if you don't know much about it, the river was pretty much just um, a wasteland of oil and grease and trash and a lot of pollution, which is what caused those fires. 
Um, and I think it's important to reflect on this. I think the community in that area is reflecting on this a lot, but even at a national level, it's such a good reminder of how stormwater in particular affects our water bodies um, with runoff and um, trash and all different kinds of um, pollution and debris going into um, our rivers. It's an important reminder of why we protect them and why we do that at um, not at the river, but before it gets to the river. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a really cool story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, shout out too to the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. John mm-hmm. Gonzalez runs all the social media and communications for that dis- sewer sewers district. They are really fun to follow on Twitter if you're not following them. Mm-hmm. But they have they're doing an entire campaign on this to kind of let people know about it and help people learn the history and understand the history of it. So. Definitely, if you have a chance, check out their Twitter feed and stuff because they, they are, A, hysterical, and B, super, super educational. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really yeah, funny, yeah. really educational, yes. and, like, it's just, it's a great account to follow if you're not following it already. And that is so impactful because um, you guys out in the field, that is such um, a big responsibility to educate the public Absolutely. on... Um, these environmental um, goals because it affects everybody and even if they don't know about it so we gotta talk about it um, but a couple other quick things before we get into the interview is it is pride month and we saw a very cool um, news release from the MWRD and it is how For the first time ever, the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago will raise a rainbow LGBTQ flag in honor of Pride Month. So awesome, awesome job, MWRD, and happy Pride to everybody Mm -hmm. listening. Yeah, and and like just shout out to them for doing that. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Super cool. And in addition to that, today Lauren and I participated in our first. Um, Women of Water Book Club with the Illinois AWWA and that was really cool to connect with um, some more ladies in the water industry so thank you so much for having us Um, this month we read um, Dare to Lead by Brene Brown and it's really good it's very Mm -hmm. good highly recommend I've been recommending it to all my friends actually because it's it doesn't just apply to women and it doesn't Mm -mm. doesn't just apply to the water sector it applies to anybody who communicates with people yeah on a daily basis and who especially if you're not a leader if you want to be a leader if you want to interact with other leaders on your team better it's it's just really a great read um we've taken a lot from it so that was pretty cool rumbling (laughs) (laughs) and lauren you had mentioned too that you watched a documentary that you wanted to plug as well yeah well um i just wanted to bring this up because uh couple episodes bob brought up the documentary on netflix Mm -hmm. about pfos what was that one called again? the devil we know the devil we know um so i watched a documentary recently called the plastic ocean also available on netflix and um it was about how microplastics impact the waterways and what just blew my mind about it is that every everyone every single person who's ever had fish in their life probably has microplastics in their body because it impacts our waterway that much. Oh my gosh. So it, it <laughs> I mean, was it's the same as PFAS then too. Yeah, it's that I mean, ubiquitous. It was scary to to see up close and personal and they went to more than twenty different countries to mm-hmm. um, to investigate this. 
Um, but it was really scary to see, and it also makes you kind of count your blessings a little bit too, because even though we have a problem with it here in the United States, there are several other countries that have a significant more plastic pollution problem than we do. Okay, so why don't we move on to our interview. Um, for this episode, we talked to Rob Moore, who is, who is Senior Policy Analyst with the NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council. Um, here at Talking Underwater, we like to get a lot of different perspectives on different issues that affect water. and. Um, the NRDC has some interesting takeaways about flooding in the Midwest, and so we wanted to hear their perspective. Um, so here's that interview. So on the line we have Rob Moore, the director of NRDC's um, water and climate team. Um, Rob, why don't we get started? Can you just tell me, tell us a little bit about the increase in flooding happening due to climate change. Yeah, one of the things that climate scientists have been telling us to expect for many, many years is an uptick in the frequency and potentially the magnitude even of flood events that we see. And that's true for both coastal areas where we would see flooding from um, uh, strong coastal storms like hurricanes. Uh, it would also be true of inland flooding where uh, more, more severe or extreme weather events uh, dump more precipitation in a shorter amount of time, and that can contribute to flooding. So if you look at the, if you look at the data across the country, what, what scientists have been telling us to expect is, is indeed proving to be true. Um, there's multiple studies out there that show that the frequency of flooding, particularly across the Midwest, and uh, the northeastern United States is indeed increasing. And we do seem to be seeing uh, a larger number of these kind of historic levels of, of flooding, events that are bringing flooding that have little or almost no precedent in our historic record. Yeah, so could you tell us a little bit about the National Flood Insurance Program and how it operates? Um, what are the ways that it can adapt to increasing flood risks, and why do inland states face more flood disasters than coastal ones, for instance? Yeah, can I take the latter question first? Absolutely, any order you'd like to take them in. <laughs> Great. It's a shorter answer. The only reason I uh, thought I would take that one first. Flood disasters happen uh, more frequently in the Midwest for a variety of reasons. I mean, one, it's it's just a... Uh, it's just a bigger area than the coastline. So, um, you know, you, you have kind of a larger likelihood of, of severe weather that's going to cause flooding. Also, the type of flooding you see in the Midwest is often um, on, it, it can often be on smaller rivers. You know, we always think of Midwestern flooding as, as kind of what we're seeing in Nebraska and Iowa and Kansas right now with the, the big, the big uh, Missouri River and its major tributaries overflowing its banks or the Mississippi River. But most floods on inland waterways are not on the major rivers. They're on these smaller waterways that can be a lot flashier. So waters may rise much more quickly in response to a more localized uh, flood event. Uh, that's the main reason you see uh, a higher number of floods and flood disasters declared in, in inland areas. As far as gotcha. you know, what is what is the National Flood Insurance Program? Well, the the interesting answer is it is way more than just a flood insurance program. Uh, as the name implies, it certainly provides relatively low cost insurance coverage 
to about five five million people nationwide. Uh, and that's coverage provided through the federal government. Uh, the program is administered by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA. But it also does uh, three other things that are really important. Uh, the first is uh, the flood insurance program is responsible for mapping flood risk. So it produces flood maps that more than 22,000 communities around the country uh, adopt and that guide all local development decisions as they pertain to the floodplain. Uh, what you build, where you build, how you build it, uh, largely are defined by what's on those flood maps. So they're very important. The other thing it does is it sets minimum development standards for things that are going to be built in the floodplain. So it does things like sets different construction standards, different types of materials that can or can't be used, and off and probably most importantly, it defines how high a property uh, must be elevated uh, to help reduce the risk of frequent flooding. And then the last thing, uh, one of the last things it does, is it's also a, a um, the primary source of information about flood risk. Um, FEMA collects a huge amount of data on the amount of damages that occur, the amount of damages that occur on any given property. Uh, it has a huge amount of information on how uh, communities are complying with those development standards. Um, so that's a, it's a very important primary source of information. But in all aspects of the program, uh, it's, it's really failing to deliver, to deliver what the nation needs because no aspect of the flood insurance program has kept pace with the impacts of climate change. And climate change really isn't factored into any of the functions of the National Flood Insurance Program, which is to everybody's detriment. So along those lines, what is the value of updated flood maps in accounting for changing flood risks? So flood maps, um, flood maps are often years or even decades out of date. Um, so for instance, when Hurricane Sandy hit New York City in 2012, the flood maps that New York City was using had been created in 1983, um, you know, almost three decades earlier. So a lot had changed in New York City over those three decades. Uh, land use had probably changed slightly, but sea levels had risen a certain amount, uh, which means tides were rising higher, precipitation patterns had changed, uh, new information had undoubtedly come uh, available about um, storm effects and other things like potential for runoff that could exacerbate flooding. And none of that was built into the flood maps that were in effect at the time Hurricane Sandy hit. So um, if we're making development decisions based on 20 or 30 year old information, we are right out of the gate. We're making we're making worse decisions than we would otherwise make. However, for communities that have the latest, greatest flood maps produced by FEMA, they still uh, are pretty much out of date on the day they're published because um, no flood maps produced by FEMA account for future flood risks. So they don't account for future sea level rise. They don't account for the potential for uh, storms that have no historical precedent. Um, and those are all things that we know are um, 
likely to happen or will definitely happen uh, as the climate changes. So until we have that type of information built into these flood maps, we are we are going to continue to build things in places that we are going to eventually have to spend a heck of a lot of money to unbuild later. Do you think that they have the capabilities to create those kinds of maps, predicting things that, I mean, sometimes these, these, these weather events seem very unpredictable. So do they have the capability to create those types of maps? Yeah, we, it's definitely within our technical capability to create maps that incorporate future projections. I mean, other agencies incorporate this type of information into maps all the time. Um, when you look at uh, some of the information NOAA puts out on on coastal flood risks and storm surge, you know, they also incorporate some projections of sea level rise into those. In fact, a, a um, technical mapping advisory Council was convened by FEMA a few years ago to specifically make recommendations on how best to incorporate these types of future conditions into flood maps. And at least in coastal areas, uh, it's something that is well within our capability. Uh, sea level rise projections um, can, can be incorporated into those maps in a way that will help better informed development decisions and will make sure that when things are built in compliance with local building and zoning codes, that those sea level rise assumptions are, are built into those decisions right from the get-go. Okay, that makes sense. Um, now, there's been a lot of talk about how we need to improve our in infrastructure to better accommodate for things like flooding. Um, what else do you think needs to happen at the federal level to prepare for this type of flooding? Well, one of the smartest things that's been done in recent memory uh, was in 2015, President Obama signed an executive order that updated uh, what's known as the Federal Flood Risk Management Standard and basically required that any time a federal agency spent a dollar uh, to help a state or local or a federal agency build something, a uh, water treatment plant, a uh, hospital, um, a school, a fire station, you know, whatever federal dollars uh, might be supporting the construction of, that an extra margin of safety for flooding needed to be uh, built into that design. Um, and where practicable, uh, uh, future sea level rise projections should also be factored into that design. And the way it would be factored into the design would be to uh, either think about elevating the property so that flood floodwaters were less likely to rise to the area where damage might occur, uh, or to relocate, uh, to consider actually relocating where you were building something, um, which would be an even uh, better preventative measure. So that was really one of the smartest things that the federal government has done in recent memory to help make sure we're building infrastructure uh, that is designed from the outset to cope with escalating flood risks. One of the dumbest things that's been done uh, by the federal government on that front was in 2017 when President Trump rescinded that same executive order eight days before Hurricane Harvey made landfall. Um, doing that has basically ensured that hundreds of billions of dollars of federal infrastructure monies are no longer going to be spent 
uh, to build things in a way where they're more resilient to future sea level rise and flood risk. Um, so it's it's really been a, a lost opportunity. It also means that hundreds of billions of dollars that have been allocated in federal disaster aid are now probably being more focused on building everything exactly the way it was rather than building it with this increased margin of safety as would have been required had that executive order been left in place. So out of curiosity, does that affect like um, future developments on in floodplain areas as well, or is that just simply um, um, developments that are already there that have like taken in uh, too much damage kind of situation? Yeah, both. I do want to stress that, that 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 executive order only applied to federal dollars, so things being built using federal funding. So it wouldn't affect private development or homes being developed um, unless there was some sort of federal grant attached to the construction of those things. So it was, it was really we're really talking about public buildings and public infrastructure assets. But you are correct; it would apply to um, new new construction, so a new building or a new sewage treatment plant that was being built, but it would also apply to things that were heavily damaged in the flood and were being rebuilt, um, so that if something had been damaged, say, uh, more than 50% of its replacement cost, now that's a perfect that's a perfect time to step in and say, whoa, we are doing massive repairs to this thing. Let's just rethink what we're doing here. You know, This is a good opportunity to say, Maybe we need to build this with a little bit more uh, margin of safety for flooding. Maybe it's even a good time to think about whether we should relocate this. You know, if you've got, for instance, a, a sewage treatment plant is a good example. Maybe it's maybe you've been that plant has been around for 50 years. Maybe it's approaching the end of its design life anyway, and now it's been heavily damaged in a flood. Uh, you're already going to be looking at some sort of upgrade or substantial capital investment in that plant um, when it's been damaged in a, in a natural disaster is a, is a really good opportunity to at least ask the question, should we rebuild it here or should we rebuild it somewhere else? Um, and if you, if you are going to rebuild it in the same location, should you rebuild it the same way? Should you replicate the vulnerability that's just been exposed? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point, and we actually, um, Lauren and I saw that in practice after Hurricane Harvey in 2017. Um, we met with some of the local sewage plant people, and they talked about moving things out of their low-lying areas, especially like electrical equipment and everything. They started making big changes yeah. to how they handled everything because that flood totally changed their perception of what could actually happen. So that's an exact, like a perfect way to describe it and to showcase that that's exactly what this is designed for. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Pensacola, Florida also did something similar. I mean, and this was not uh, in response uh, to Hurricane Michael last year. This was actually done several years ago where, you know, the, the exact situation I just described, they had an, an aging sewage treatment plant. It was literally located on the beach. Um, it had to be replaced anyway. And they were like, you know, it just doesn't make sense for us to build this thing in the same location. We, we know it's vulnerable. Um, we know we're just going to end up having to repair this as sea levels rise and flooding uh, becomes uh, a bigger risk. So they moved it a considerable distance inland, um, and it sustained, I think, very little damage in Hurricane Michael last year as a result. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for sharing your your thoughts and your perspective. Um, it's been really valuable hearing hearing 
um, your answers to our questions. So thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. I really appreciate you reaching out to us. All right. So that was a pretty interesting talk. Um, it's um, great to hear different perspectives from those that aren't necessarily necessarily um, as in the water industry as we are. It was interesting to talk about um, flood maps in particular. Yeah, and I wanted to touch on that briefly too because I, my, my job before this, I was lived in an area where the flooding was like a big deal mm-hmm. um, and they had the most historic floods since, that they've had since 1993, which they termed the Great Flood of 93. It yeah. was so big. And um, that was in southern Illinois. Yeah, right? it's in southern Illinois, north of St. Louis, kind of in uh, the it's the Illinois and the Missis- and the Mississippi River Valley, so they both kind of come to collide there. They have a confluence right there, um, and there was a ton of flooding down there. The, the levee actually just overtopped with water. It was so much, wow. um, and there's a great photo. I'll see if I can find it. I don't know that I can, if we can post it or not, just due to image rights and stuff, but there's a photo of, um, there's a salvage yard that has a car that's on like easily a 15-foot pole, um, and it's been there forever it was there in 1993 and the water touched the wheels of that the bottom of that car so literally 15 feet of water and this year it did the same thing again mm-hmm. um so but to to the point of um uh, of rob moore and the nrdc talking about floodplains and buyouts of homes and stuff like that a lot of buyouts happened in 1993 and because of that there's not nearly as much damage as there would have been had those properties remained That's there interesting. so um while while they are controversial programs, they do create like mm. they do provide relief later on. Right. Um. I. I mean, that's not to take away from the fact that there's tremendous amount of damage down of there. Course. But the amount of damage could have been so much worse had those buyouts not occurred. That's very interesting. So thanks for sharing. So that about wraps up our June episode. Mm-hmm. Um. We did have a couple of quick plugs. Yeah, so the first is the Water Expo. We wanted to plug that one again. Um, That's in August on the 28th and 29th. Um, It is in Miami. There's a lot of people from uh, South America who will be there in Latin America, the Caribbean. Um, Really looking forward to that, to hearing a different type of, uh, a different side of the industry in terms of like culture and Mm -hmm. issues that they deal with, because I'm sure they're totally, I'm sure there's a lot of similarities, but there's just some different ones there too. So we're really looking forward to that one, but um, registration, I believe, is still open for that, so you can definitely still apply to uh, to come. There's tons of sessions on water, wastewater, stormwater, um, basically everything that we cover here from a one water perspective will be covered there for the most part. Um, and yeah, if you, uh, we really encourage you to take some time to to check them out. And uh, last but not least, don't forget to register for the SWS conference and exhibition, which will be in. Um, in Tinley Park, Illinois, this November. Um, Stay tuned because in a few weeks we're going to be announcing our keynote speaker, and she is very cool, and I'm really excited to announce her. Um, Nice tease with the (laughs) she is. (laughs) And um, we also just narrowed down our other speakers in our educational sessions, so we'll be announcing that soon too. So there's some exciting things coming and keep your eyes peeled for those updates. And you can always go to swsconferenceexpo.com for more info. Awesome. That about wraps it up. Yeah. All we got left to say is, again, get in touch with us.
talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com, at swsmag, at wwdmag, and at wqpmag on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook as well. Uh, we also have uh, LinkedIn pages for each of our magazines as well. Check those out um, if you're using LinkedIn a little more frequently. We're posting every day there too. Um, and leave us a review and tell us how we're doing. Uh, cool. Always happy to chat with everybody. Thanks. We make a point to respond to all the people yeah, who... Yeah, we always respond. We got some good ideas us. recently from listeners, so yeah. we're looking forward to incorporating those into future episodes. For sure. Well, see you next month. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you.